You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 30th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Quite right, governor. So we're still cleaning up after the tornado. What has it been, two weeks? They just cleaned up my street today. Remarkable. Yeah, your street sucked, Steve. I, I was just over there this weekend. You know, we were still doing stuff in the studio, and um, I'm, like, still zigzagging on this street. You can't drive a straight line. you got to, like, drive around all the debris. But you can still get through. Yeah, you yeah, can, you get, can through. get through. But it's not – it really – it's weird. When, it, when something is in the street, it makes it look like a war zone. Yeah. It's not yeah, natural. That's true because there's not supposed to be stuff in the street. That's right. We had to go to my mom's house this weekend to deal with all her trees. Now, she lived in a, you know the land that they used where her house was built uh, was in a deep old forest as well, right? So the trees are like 100 feet tall, you know, without exaggeration. These incredibly tall trees. Um, and a few of those went down. Oh, boy. So we were – you know, we had – Steve had this expert super high-end handsaw, like, you know, like a lumberjack-looking handsaw – and I had my uh, my chainsaw out, and we just went for it. We cut down, chopped up what? How many trees, Steve? Three or four? Yeah, there were some branches, some large branches, you know, like tree sized branches, <laughs> <You're> very big. <laughs> plus, uh, plus a couple other trees. Yeah, and then there was one big one that was beyond anything that we had that we we couldn't get rid of, but we cleaned up all. It was a whole all day project, just just cleaning her front yard. We didn't even begin in the backyard. There's like two trees down there we got to take care of too. So Those you know what I found boys. out. So the storm does the storm like a tornado because it's an incredibly powerful storm. It um it knocks a bunch of trees down, blows some stuff around. But the thing that's really dangerous, there's two things that are really dangerous after a storm like that. One is they call them the widow makers, and these are big tree branches that get lodged in other trees. Mm-hmm. And what what ends up happening is another windstorm comes and blows those things out of the other trees and kills people. Yeah. So the the tree guy that came over here ended up checking my whole yard just to make sure there weren't any widow makers out there. And the other thing that's been going on is that um, you know these secondary trees start falling down about a week and a half to two weeks after the storm because they've been severely weakened, but they weren't pushed far enough to fall down. But then you know they get big cracks in them and things like that, and, the, and then water gets in. Next thing you know, the tree comes down, and we've had trees just randomly fall down now. You know, like for seemingly no reason. Of course, it, the reason is that they were. Significantly compromised during the the uh, storm, so you got to be careful. Yeah, the danger's still out there. Yeah, behind my house, you Jay, you saw this. The uh, yeah. this is you know far away from my house. There's nothing is in danger, uh, but there was one tree that's cracked almost all the way through, but still upright. So that one's going to come down at some point. And then there's this really really big oak tree leaning on two other trees. There's a lot of potential energy there. And who, that's a very unstable situation. You have that tree that the big, big, big tree that you're talking about is actually resting on a tree that's bent over, right? So that that could snap. Yeah. You know, like which tree do you cut first? This is where you need a tree expert to come in and check it out. Um, yeah. But I'm curious to, to know how they do it, Steve. So tell me if you if you have anyone come take care of that. Yeah, eventually. Oh. Just to drop it. Like They don't need to take it away. It's out in the woods. But I just want to drop it so it's not – like hanging, you know, hanging there, waiting to fall. But the good you know? news is this. Here's the good, good news. news. 
One, Kara was not even in the state when it happened. She's fine. We got like about 200 emails. I'm... Is Kara okay? That's all we care about. Aww. She's in perfectly safe <laughs> California. Yeah, yes, right. I like, am. No danger. Well, we were like <laughs> so almost dying here. over here. Kara was probably out having dinner, you know, sushi yeah. or whatnot, <laughs> enjoying herself. Um, <laughs> the other great thing is Steve just told me today yes. that SGU Studios is pretty much like the drama is over. Like the plumber and the uh, the gas guy and the electrician are all going to be done this week, meaning that you know they're cutting holes in the ceiling of the studio to, to service – the first floor of Steve's house, so that's over after this. So when I get Yay. in there this weekend, because we're prepping for the uh, we're prepping for the Patreon member, the exclusive member uh, live stream, I mm. get to clean the studio one last time, and then that's <laughs> I don't have to worry about it again for a long How many time. T- so hopefully, like the eighth time you've cleaned that studio, Jay. We, emergency <laughs> style, without exaggeration, is probably the third big like, oh my god. Things are really screwed up. Clean up job I've had to do. Yeah, but I kind of enjoy it. I'm a weird guy. I like to do dishes too. <laughs> <laughs> I like to make order out of chaos. I do, and that's why Kara. I want to live forever. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> oh no, that's oh, a whole other. That's a big topic. <laughs> big topic. I will dedicate a whole show to it sometime. Okay. I wonder what Elon Musk's thoughts are on that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so many segues, Steve. What's happening? Well, since you guys want to talk about this stuff so much, why don't we move on and get to our, <laughs> our actual items? Kara, Kara, I got a yes. question for you. What's your question? What's the word? Word. Oh, I'm going to erupt this word right into our conversation. The word this week is eruptive and it is spelled i-r-r-u-p-t-i-v-e eruptive and wallace keith wrote to us he said um he's from northeastern california he said uh it's a quote actually he just wrote the word eruptive and a quote and i don't know where it's from i tried to google it and it gave me no matches it just says i'm so going to miss my little pine siskins with their buzzy chatter when they leave they aren't rare, but are an eruptive species, so they will show up in large numbers some years, but not others. Okay, so that gives us a little hint, and we'll get to that very specific definition in a minute. But um, g- more generally, the verb erupt, I-R-R-U-P-T, refers to something that rushes in, usually forcefully or violently. The noun form is eruption, a breaking or a bursting in or an invasion or a violent incursion. And it can also refer to the act of breaking through to a surface. The ecological meaning, though, goes somewhat deeper, and it actually has two distinct definitions that are related. So it's typically spoken of birds. You'll hear them as a common example. I'm assuming that pine siskins are birds. Are they? Sounds like a bird name. I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, well, call and range. Yes, it is a bird. Um, North American bird in the finch family. Uh, family? Family. Family. Yes, well done, Karen. Oh is this your that first is one? Amazing. I think it might be. I read I the word the first one. family while I looked at the word migratory. Oh, that is amazing. Familatory. Love it. Love it. <laughs> so good. Um, so yes, that is a um, a bird of the finch familatory. And uh, that has to do with this word. It's typically spoken of birds, but sometimes other animals. An eruption is one, a migration of abnormally large numbers. 
So you might talk about in this case, remember the quote says they aren't rare, but are an eruptive species. So they'll show up in large numbers some years, but not others. So that's the definition that Wallace here is referring to. But the other more common definition that you'll come across is a sudden increase in an animal population, the population itself, especially when the ecological balance is somehow disturbed. Are you talking about when an invasive species is introduced to an environment and sort of takes over the environment? Like what happens in Australia sometimes? That would be an example of an eruption. Or it might be the case that if for some reason a food source it dies off or actually probably more likely a predator dies off, you may see an eruption in that species because there's no longer a predator nearby mm-hmm. and that balance is not maintained. We're seeing it right now with the acidification of the ocean in algal blooms. We're seeing it in jellyfish, for example, like these massive eruptions that aren't really maintaining this sort of harmonious balance, uh, this equilibrium that's often maintained. So um, are cicadas eruptive inherently because of how – you know, they, they just pop out every seven years or whatever. Could be. And the interesting thing is, even if they're not eruptive as by um, as related to the second definition that I was mentioning, even though I think that they probably do qualify, they're definitely eruptive by the first definition, because the second definition talks about the physical number of animals in the ecosystem kind of exploding. But the first definition is a significant number migrating into a certain area. And so, yes, they're springing forth out of you know, um, they're actually coming to life and and in these massive numbers, but they're also centralizing. They're kind of moving into an area where they didn't exist and they're kind of eating through everything in their path. And so I think that that also has that this sort of biblical consequence, right? When we think of these like locusts, it's probably just that it was a cicada year when all these um, animals came out in these massive numbers. But sometimes you do see these swarms of locusts or I think I've mentioned it on the show before, these crickets ugh, that we used to get in tech and these disgusting swarms. And they made me ultimately really hate crickets as an adult because you would be stopping at the gas station or you'd be outside on a warm summer night playing baseball. And underneath the big lights, there would just be piles, sometimes feet high of crickets. Yeah, just in these mounds. And there was a smell and it was just terrible. Mm. That would be definitely an eruption. So one last thing I want to make sure we we understand is that eruption with an I is often confused with eruption with an E. But it's basically the opposite. Yeah, they're distinct. And so it's important because even though both of them have to do with like a a breaking or a bursting or a violent or a sudden thing – Erupt with an E means to explode suddenly and violently, like to break out to um, this is according to the grammarist to break out dramatically to exhibit a mood change. I'm quoting her here or he I'm not sure who the grammarist is. Erupt means the action of a volcano exploding of a rash or skin blemishes breaking out of the skin of a tooth breaking through the gums. Related words erupt, erupted, erupting. The word erupt is derived from the Latin erumper, which we'll get to, which means to break out. But erupt with an I, which is also related to the Latin erupt, erumper, it means to enter suddenly or forcibly, to burst in, to break in. Interrupt. Yeah. Erupt also describes an animal or plant. You know, like I said, the word erupt comes from erumper, which is actually, they have the same root, the rumpir part. But the erumper versus the erumper 
means to break into. So in everyday usage, we actually don't see the word erupt, which is why everybody was surprised. But the real distinction here is that erupt with an E describes or erupt describes something that bursts out. Erupt with an I describes something that bursts in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In and out. Okay. So um, when we look at the etymology, they both have a similar root. Don't get your mind out of the gutter. Get it out. Get it out, Evan. Um, They both have a similar root in the the 14th century. And the root is rumpir, which means to rupture or to break. So it's just a a function of the ER, the IR being added to that. So the noun um, came first in in the 14th century. And then weirdly, the verb was back formulated not until the 1800s. So that sometimes happens where a word is used in a certain usage and then eventually uh, we change the way it's, you know, like text, like I will text you. That's like a verb form of a word that never used that form before. Um, So, yeah, they both mean to rupture, to break. One is in, one is out. And I think the usage that we're probably going to commonly describe in um, a scientific setting is um, the usage in ecology. So either migration of large numbers or actually an an explosive an explosive kind of population number. But you'll see it sometimes in geology. Things might erupt through something. Um, you'll see it in other uses too. So Kara, is it fair to say that New York in July will experience an eruption of skeptics at Nexus? I think so. I think that's a great <laughs> usage. And a great plug. July 12th through the 15th. All right, Jay, you're going to get us started with the news item. You're going to talk about getting busy on Mars. Ooh. (laughs) Well, kind of, yeah. So Mars has been in the news a lot over the past few years. It's probably even been more than a few years. How long have we been talking about Mars as like a place to, to go? Next, you know, for uh, space missions. Always. Forever? Decades, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there, there was a legitimate resurgence of it, what, in the last five years? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, Bush Sr. was talking about it uh, quite a while ago. Um, he, they, he seriously talked about it. And then, of course, there's just uh, too much money. Not going to do it. Bye-bye. I think when the Mars landers in the 1990s started landing again, that sort of kicked up the interest again. Yeah, I remember uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, you know, we want boots on the ground and all that. And then we have NASA now and SpaceX are both planning missions or manned missions to Mars. So what would it take to have a colony on Mars? Now, way beyond just getting people safely there, landing them safely on the surface, you know, we have all of these tiny details to consider to prevent hundreds or thousands of catastrophic type of events that could easily take place. You know, one little screw up. Watching the Martian, I mean, look at all the things that went wrong uh, just on their mission. You know, what we're doing now is we're having people actually spend time thinking all of these details through. Mars is very different than the Earth. You know, I don't know if everyone knows the details, but, you know, there's a lot of significant things that are that are different. The differences between Earth and Mars are significant here. We have the Earth. Earth has 1G. Mars has 0.3G. Yeah, 30%. The average temperature on Earth is 57 degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, – what is that in um, – It's balmy. Is that really compared the to average Mars. temperature on Earth? Yeah. Average temp- huh. temperature on Earth is 57 degrees, which is, is a, you know, like a cool, a cool day. Yeah, that's 57 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a cool day. You need to wear a jacket. Average temperature on Mars, minus 81 degrees Fahrenheit. That that's, is you go outside and you die. <laughs> so that's 13 degrees Celsius and what did you say? Minus Eight, 81 Fahrenheit? Minus 81, yeah. It's probably like minus 65 or something yeah. like that Celsius. Yeah, it's re- ridiculously cold. You know, you probably, you know, you have an... Oh, negative the, 62, 63. Ooh, oh, nice. Well, well yeah, done. Oh. 
with regular clothing, you would last about two or three minutes in that temperature. Maybe. Steve, Steve to, to come up with that number, did you think about where Fahrenheit and Celsius uh, converge? Like at what? Yeah. Minus 40? Yeah, Zero, that's what 20. I mean. Minus 40, yeah. Evan, isn't it nice that we have a couple of smart people on this show? Oh, more than one. Yeah. I know how to use the converter app on my yeah. phone. Yeah. <laughs> I, know to, I know how to Google stuff like What's that. What's the temperature so, in Kelvin? So uh, oh, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> oh, in Kelvin, it's 210.372 repeating. Oh, gosh. I was I can off, also I tell was you off in, by the, uh, the repeating part there. I love Kelvin. I don't even know what Rankin and Hobbs. I love Kelvin and Hobbs. Is. There's a degree Rankine, too. I got you. Go ahead. All right. So <laughs> another interesting thing here. Yes. The Earth's, the Earth's atmosphere, it's ni- mostly nitrogen, oxygen. Then we go to argon and a few other gases. Mars, mm. it's mostly carbon dioxide and a little water Oops. vapor. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide. You know, like that's, that's, not good. that's the it's atmosphere. A damn thin atmosphere. Yeah. And it's crazy thin. Yeah. Like 1%. 100th or? Yeah. 1%. 1%. 1%. So setting up a colony on Mars means that the colonists will have to ha- have children eventually, right? We're not saying we're just sending a bunch of scientists there to con- conduct experiments and come back. We're saying we're sending people there oh, and boy. we want them to keep going. If you want it to be self-sustaining, yeah. 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 Is that sort of the definition of a colony versus like a research facility, you think? Yeah. What a colony the needs establishing to have? Like, yeah, like a generational or, thing. Right. I think I would say so. Yeah, all right. So the team of re- team of researchers recently developed a paper, and they titled it "Biological and Social Challenges of Human Reproduction in a Long-Term Mars Base." And this is where they outline what the specific challenges would be, and also some some solutions to to some of these you know more difficult things. And we they even get into like moral questions. The subtitle of the paper is "Getting Busy in Point Three G." Yeah, I mean they're. <laughs> they're some of the obvious things are, are what? Shielding the colonists from solar radiation. It's obvious. It's hard to overcome, but not anywhere near impossible to overcome. Cosmic rays, too. Yep. And like we said, Mars, you know, the atmosphere is about 1% as thick as the Earth, which means that more radiation will hit the surface of the planet. And that radiation well, – it, It's not just because of the thin atmosphere. There's also the fact that there's no – essentially no magnetosphere. That's very weak. Thing. Very weak yep. magnetic field. Yeah. Now, what could that do to people? That could – Give people brain damage, you know, you know, give them uh, brain cancer, increase general risk of cancer. The radiation could also reduce uh, male sperm counts, which is important because you know you have to have if you know all the sperm dies, uh, you're not having any kids. Uh, another major concern is that the we have a big gravity difference, right? So the, the, it's roughly about a third of Earth's gravity. And it turns out that microgravity isn't that healthy. It causes a lot of biological changes. These are things that you don't want to have happen. You you know you don't want to lose muscle and bone. Uh, you don't want to have eye problems. Well, you know people can even lose their vision vision in microgravity. Not just have biological changes to the structure of your eye, but you know you could just go blind. Dehydration, uh, reduction of heart rate, and a compromised immune response, among other things that they've listed. But these are the major things. So. As an example here, pregnancy lowers the expectant mother's immune system. It does this to not fight the baby off as a foreign body. Now, if we compound that with microgravity compromising the mother's immune response, this could lead to more infections, which could you know kill the fetus, and also could you know these infections could spread to other colonists. A struggling colony might have to take a very different stance on the value of a child's life or the mother's life, for that matter. Like, think about this now. So you have a society that has to really start 
thinking or shifting towards the idea that the group is more important than the individual. And in our day, individual rights are, are you know, pretty important. You know, like we will spend a lot of money on medical treatments to save a life or extend a life where on Mars, you know, an old person who is likely to have disease and they're not going to spend resources on that person. And this paper is examining this idea. Like, what do you do? Do you euthanize people? You know, age slower on Mars. It takes longer to go around the sun. So a year is longer. (laughs) (laughs) But but if if you have a terminally ill person on Mars. Do you spend the money to keep them alive and, and the, these critical and vital resources that they, they have? Um, let's say that even electricity is you know, considered a rare resource. Do you spend that energy to help this person or do you have to at some point decide you know, maybe their life needs to end now because the group must survive, right? That's, that's even hard to say. It's a, it's a you, big deal. You turn them into Soylent Green. Exactly. This has a big brother <laughs> aspect to it. I, wow. What was funny? Which flavor? I'm thinking about this. I kept thinking about that line. Cattle will be raised and slaughtered, you know. <laughs> slaughtered. Uh, slaughtered. That's a movie quote. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. You know, what if um, watch kids again. are born with disabilities? What do you do? Right? It's a really tough situation that these people are going to be in, especially if they don't have the instant ability to get resupplied by the Earth. New residents to Mars or, or people who are born on Mars would need to be able to accept these kind of societal changes. And the paper was discussing that it would be good to give people counseling before they went on such an incredibly uh, you know, epic journey, like changing where you live, like what planet you live on. They have to prepare them psychologically to deal with all the things that are going to happen. The researchers also, and this is my favorite part, they mentioned that genetic engineering should be considered before and after the colonists are sent, meaning that – and this kind of reminds me of The Expanse a little bit, that TV show The Expanse where you have people living on mm. Mars and you have people living in the belt and all these varied environments. And it made me think, you know, maybe they did do genetic engineering on the people in The Expanse. I didn't read the book. I'm just watching the show just for any of the fans of the book out there. But it would make sense that they did genetic engineering to make people more uh, accustomed to or able to live in these different environments. But if we did that with people that are going to Mars, and I, and I wouldn't even, couldn't even begin to think, like, what would they want to change about them genetically to make them be able to live on Mars easier? But that's what the paper is recommending, that we should be doing genetic engineering to, to ease their transition to becoming legitimately to becoming Martians. And think about that. The implications there, you know, we're developing then a – a divergent species from mm-hmm. humans. Yeah, that is interesting. About time. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> Bob goes, what, what, Bob? We should go half cyborg and call it a day, and then we can go anywhere we want. Full cyborg. That's another good. Yeah. Another good you never question. go full cyborg. Character. Yeah, you can't okay. go full, right? <laughs> but full well. cyborg is perfectly half, right? No, I guess that would be full. Yeah, I mean. Do you still need the Borg portion, You'd, you'd be by Borg. That's, yeah. a, that's a fun thing to talk about, Kara. At what point <laughs> are you no longer cyborg and are you a synthetic yeah. being? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is it 50 Yeah, because full cyborg, well, yeah, is <clears throat> probably some ideal ratio, not yeah. 100% robot. I don't know. Would it take yeah. something like that in order to achieve long life? On, it's on almost an planet? oxymoron. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it almost cyborg is. cyborg doesn't probably. even make sense. Yeah. yeah. Like jumbo shrimp. The only, thing, <laughs> the only thing that made sense to me was that you have a, a, a computer brain interface, right? So you have like a – think of it as like a, a, another processor and a hard drive. And then very slowly over time, your brain starts saving memories and 
and functionality into the into like this other thing that's attached to your brain that's that's synthetic right so slowly over time you just slowly move your brain into that synthetic mind and mm-hmm. if you have a slow and steady transition i don't know why speed you know doing it slowly but it seems to to be more subtle at that point then you could move your consciousness into a machine mm-hmm. right yeah we, we talked to about go. that before yeah i'll do it yeah the whole continuity is Seems I'm like sorry, are we still on Mars? Issue. We're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just, I'm, this is what I'm These thinking. conversations that, always go this way. Uh, what do you want to talk it's about, a big, Kara? It's a huge... <laughs> I love what? it. This is where I would take it too, I think. Or I, I'd probably take it more into like some of these moral aspects of, yeah, like how are we doing the the genetic engineering with the children, you know? Because obviously, like you were just talking about putting all of these efforts or resources into the elderly and those that are dying, well, you could have the same conversation about a challenging birth, yet, of course, this would have kind of a children of men mentality to it, wouldn't it? Like, it's all about the children. We've got to do everything Mm -hmm. at the cost of making sure the children can thrive. Yeah, it will be. It'll be interesting to see, like, what culture develops out of the, the demands of life on Mars, you know? Like in the expanse, the Martians were had sort of a similar role as Americans do in that because they were colonists, they were innovators, they were sort of the technolo- technological innovators of the solar system, right? Their technology was the most advanced, and the and the Earth was like the old world, you know, a little crusty, you know, which is interesting. But I think what you're saying is that the, the culture might develop even differently where. They are like hyper community oriented and the survival of the community has to take priority over any individual because otherwise everyone's going to die. You know, you just. Yeah, they'd have to be. We'd almost need like sociologists to have studied kind of hunter gatherer and more mm-hmm. like um, cultures from developing nations where there still is that really strong communal sensibility. Well, like, but in like the new world. You could go in the woods, build a cabin and hunt and trap and live by yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't do that on Mars, right? No way. That's true. Yeah. You have to work with other people. You absolutely yeah. no will choice. have to work in the community. So, And you can't be like, you know, racist or bigoted or, you know, all these different things that make you want to be very separate. Like you have to just be very open to even if the people that are there with you are very different from you, which they will be. They'll find yeah. a way, Kara. They'll be like, those bastards from Sector 1, we're going to get yeah, them. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. That's what people yeah. do. People, people being people, right? I'm, yeah. hoping a, I'm hoping a lot of these questions are answered first on the moon before Mars. But yeah. Thank you. Like yes. I know you yes. do. Record. Yeah. So it's human yeah. nature. Oh Jay, <laughs> yep. Jay, will yeah. the Martian colonists have to take multivitamins, do you think? Uh, I would guess <laughs> no, Steve. <laughs> I don't think they would. They probably would need vitamin D. Because they're not going to get mm-hmm. as much sun, right? And depending on the, their food supply, they might need to to supplement. Depending on how mm-hmm. much fresh produce they can have, they might have to disproportionately get they're their right. calories get from the, grains. Yeah. Then I would right. guess yes, Steve. Okay. But then, even then, wouldn't it be safer, Steve, or um, more effective? Maybe is a better question to fortify the food with multivitamins mm-hmm. instead of just taking a pill. Or just genetically modify the food so that it yeah. is already fortified, like yellow rice. I don't think that it's fair or even – it's not appropriate to have a baby on Mars and not allow it to be on Earth. The baby didn't get to decide to be there. 
That's too bad. But that's how that's kind of the existential problem that everybody has. None of us decided to be poor. Right. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that's nobody a... got to consult before that happened. But anyway, Jay, I was trying to segue to my news item, which is <laughs> yeah, multivitamins meta analysis. <laughs> so this is a study that was published uh, recently. Uh, it's essentially a meta analysis and review of randomized controlled trials looking at the health effects of multivitamins and specific individual vitamins. Um, I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you what the what the review found. So they found that uh, for multivitamins and vitamins D, C, A, B6, E, calcium, beta carotene, zinc, iron, and magnesium, and selenium, there was no benefit or harm for either vascular disease or all-cause mortality. So basically... The evidence does not support any health benefit from taking any of those supplements. And this, of course, I always have to emphasize this. This is routinely. This is in the general population without a specific need or underlying condition. Yeah. What what were the doses? Uh, Well, these were appropriately dosed. This is in different studies. Again, this is a meta-analysis. Uh, they also found that folic acid and B-complex, which includes folic acid plus B6 and B12, did significantly reduce stroke risk or oh. it was associated with a reduced stroke risk by about 20%, which is significant. Wow. They also found that antioxidants and niacin increased all-cause mortality. So your oh, death rate my was God. higher. Antioxidants. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. Why is that kind of awesome? Oh, they still advertise everything with antioxidants. Yeah, Yay, so great. They'll kill you. Make you live none, of this, yeah. none of this is new. None of this is new because it's a meta-analysis. So I'm, I'm familiar with all the big studies that went into it. So this, I've been writing about this for you years. So this was not surprising. But it is mm-hmm. nice to bring, put it all together and go, all right, this is, what, this is where we are right now. This is what the data shows. With the antioxidants increasing mortality, was that – a net effect that was really small because some studies showed that it increased, some studies showed that it decreased, and it just ended up being significantly different but barely? Or was this like a massive effect? It was like a 5% increase in all-course mortality to a P value of 0.05. The number needed to harm, which is another way of looking at the data, how many people Mm -hmm. have to take antioxidants for one person to die, was 250, which is not a lot. Not a lot when when the the end is death, you know. Uh, For niacin, it was 200. But it's also so hard to know. I mean, did they really, in every single study in this meta-analysis, did they clear out anybody who had a death risk? Because it could be the case that some people take these drugs because they're sick or yeah, these, so these supplements. Here are the caveats. Mm-hmm. All of this data is only of moderate rigor, right? So there's no home run here, So all, right? So all of this data is eh, – it's moderate. It's not horrible. It's not the most rigorous data you could have. And so there are possible confounding factors. You bring up one, there's the healthy user effect, there's a sick user effect. The folic acid and B-complex reducing stroke risk uh, is interesting because that was that effect in the meta-analysis was largely driven by the China Stroke Primary Prevention Trial. So basically in China, where- One trial up, it increased the overall numbers, inflated everything else? Yes, mm. And mm-hmm. and that study may not be applicable to Western countries because in China, in most locations, they do not fortify food with folic acid, where in the West we do. So you may be dealing with a population which has a lower overall folic acid level 
than people in the West do. And yeah, therefore, yeah. that may be why the China study found a benefit and, and studies in the West did not find a benefit. Mm-hmm. So that also kind of supports the overall, I think, signal in this data, which is that there's probably not much of a benefit in studies in Europe and North America because we're not malnourished at baseline, you know? Yeah. And there's so much fortification and there's so much vitamin water this and, you know, there's so much vitamins just in the background that taking a dedicated multivitamin or B complex or one of these specific vitamins, is it's unnecessary. You're, you're getting all the nu- nutrients that you need. So the, you, in other words, the the placebo or the control group is already being treated in a way, like that's how we look at it. Yeah. Um, there's so much fortification going on. Uh, but also, we just have a good diet. You know, and good in that it's not lacking in stuff. We The problem with the Western diet is that we eat too much of stuff, uh, too much fat, too much salt, whatever, too many calories. It's not that it's lacking in stuff. We actually have a, the most well-rounded diet in human history, uh, partly because we can get fresh produce 12 months a year, which is a very recent, you know, historically speaking, phenomenon. You know, nutritional deficiencies are not our problem. And therefore, supplementing is probably not going to have a huge statistical benefit and on the general population. But there is a concern that people in the West that are in poverty have that paradoxical effect, right, where they're eating really nutritionally dense food, but it's food that – or I'm sorry, really calorically dense food, but it's food that's nutritionally defective because – it's cheaper and easier to eat like fast food that's meat and fat and deep fried and potatoes. They may not have an optimal diet, and it's, you know, it's mm. but it's probably because of what it has too much of, too many calories, yeah. too much fat. You have the wrong kind of fat, et cetera. And but fresh even still, fruits and like, vegetables are expensive. Yeah, but even still, like if you eat a Big Mac, you know mm. that's There's bread tomato. There's and tomato yeah, and true. lettuce and pickles and onions and you know uh, and ketchup. Well, I understand ketchup is a vegetable. Yeah, so it's actually <laughs> all things considered, it's a fairly well-rounded meal. It, it may yeah. be too many calories Vitamin for most wise, people, yeah. but yeah. But in terms of just getting your basic nutrients, yeah, it's actually yeah. So if you eat, if you bad. cut it like a pizza and you eat a slice of a Big Mac, <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good lunch. Or yeah. So anyway, so I think that <laughs> the other thing is or... the other the other thing to realize is that, and this data has been again a strong signal in the literature is that taking vitamins does not supplement for does not does not compensate for a poor diet. You just have to eat your fruits and vegetables. And the That's benefit true. of doing that is in it's a combination of you get your nutrients but also your if you do like eat plenty of you know plant-based foods you're probably not eating too many calories and you're not getting too many animal fats and and the wrong kind of fats etc. And so it's just good for your overall diet. And you're getting fiber, which is also good. And But having a crappy diet and taking vitamins isn't the same as having a good diet. And if you have mm-hmm. a good diet, you don't need vitamins because then you're going to get plenty of nutrients. So what about the root or kind of the mechanism question, right? That if you take a bunch of pill form supplements, you're actually wasting most of the nutritional value because you're not digesting it. I'm, and, and how, what about extending that question to people like myself who I don't eat enough vegetables. So I drink a lot of green juice in an mm-hmm. effort to like get a lot of the nutrition of eating, let's say a kale salad when I don't like kale. I'll hide my kale in a green juice that has peppers and celery and other things and cucumbers that are easier for me to drink. Do you think I'm getting the same nutritional benefit 
if as sure. if I ate the kale. Yeah, absolutely. And the the thing is that that is such a very privileged Western question, to be honest yeah. with you. Ooh. Absolutely. That, you know, <laughs> no, not, it is not to be insulting. It's just we have no because most have, of the people listening to this will have. We have the luxury the of obsessing mm-hmm. over little things like that that make no difference. The the, gotcha. the variants. This is like where the whole organic thing comes down to as well. You're, you're talking about round off errors. You're talking about single digit percentages of different nutrients. It doesn't make any difference in the big picture. If you're eating anything plant based, anything green. You're fine. Don't worry about – that's why there's no superfood. There's no whatever. Yeah. Right. Just mm. any – any you know, just eat a variety of food and you're fine. And seriously, for most people, you know, without any spe- special medical needs. And obsessing over a slight advantage to this or to that or whatever is just not worth it. And it doesn't – and it, there's no signal there. It does not make any difference. Like if you eat very few or no plants in your diet, that makes a big difference. That's a bad diet. You will have a you know this negative health consequences of that, and you can't make up for those negative health consequences by taking a multivitamin. So there really isn't any health role for a multivitamin uh, for most people, right? Because it doesn't. If you're getting a good diet, you don't need it. And if you're not getting a good diet, it doesn't help. It does not compensate for it. So what's the role? There basically isn't one. And that's what this data is really telling us. The other sort of underlying philosophical issues that this bring home, brings home is that vitamins, uh, like anything else, it's all about the dose. And there's a sweet spot. And if you're getting an appropriate amount, enough to so that you're not insufficient or deficient, but not too much, you're fine. But this idea that it's like vitamins are just good and mm-hmm. therefore more is better and that's that whole paradigm of there are things that are good to eat things that are not good to eat is wrong everything is good and bad depending on the dose and it's basically if you have everything in moderation and you're fine pretty much you know there's very few exceptions to that like trans fats like you cyanide. probably don't don't need anything <laughs> well, other than I'm talking about within the realm of food right but <laughs> okay. like things like trans fats you don't need any trans fats in your diet that's and There's and very few nowadays, like that. because we have such good regulation, at least you know, yeah. for the most part in our country, you're not really eating trans fats anymore. I mean, you can if you seek them out, but it's easy but... to it's easy to avoid them. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you another question? Yeah. I'm so fascinated mm-hmm. by this because uh, I know nutritional science is one of those places where, on the skeptics' guide, and just in general, trying to be a good skeptic, it's one of the places that's the hardest yeah. to follow the science because it's kind of all over the place. So, you know, there are meal replacements out there. Another privileged question, of course, because this is coming from somebody who doesn't really – I live – no, I eat to live. I don't live to eat. You know, we remember when Soylent came on the scene and that was a really big deal. And now there's a new product called Huel, which is – um, yeah, H-U-E-L, like fuel, but Huel, um, which is Human kind of fuel. like – uh, Yeah, I guess so. And it's a new quote-unquote Soylent where their, their shtick is that – their ingredients are all plant-based. And so you're getting all the micronutrients that something like a soylent might not give you. Like it might have all the macronutrients that Mm -hmm. you need. You know, it's calculated to have that in the right proportions. But then it also has all the micronutrients. Do you think that human kibble is a good idea? Because I love this idea. And I think that this is what we're going to be eating on Mars anyway. So 
I, I don't see any reason why that would be a problem as long as mm-hmm. there's not systematically missing something. The, yeah. the, the thing about having a varied diet is that just the probability of getting all the nutrients you need is much greater. If you're going, if you're relying on a product, if they're leaving, if they're not including something they should be including, then you're going to systematically miss that. So yeah. I think meal replacements are fine to incorporate into your diet. I wouldn't live on them for, you know, for some strange reason. Can you uh, imagine all day, every day, just drinking a shake? Yeah. I think a guy did that on Soylent for a month and he said it turned his poop white. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> some, I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> that what? White? I mean, how can it, how could it ever become white? I don't know. <laughs> You're right. Exactly, Jay. I don't know if it's a Billy Rubin problem or if there was some sort of dye, you know. Yeah, it could just be that the same way when you eat beets, your poo looks bloody. It's not actually bloody. It's just got like the yeah. colorant from the beets. Like who knows? But I, either way, that doesn't sound like something I would want to have in my life is white poop. Yeah, so okay. I have to <laughs> mention a couple caveats here. Okay. You know, first of all, we don't dispense medical advice on the SGU. This is for – scientific information only. So you should consult your physician if you have any questions about your own nutrition. And there are lots of medical conditions uh, or situations in which specific vitamins are important. If you are trying to get pregnant, you should be on a prenatal vitamin, including folic acid, which reduces neural tube defects. No question about that. Uh, Depending on the color of your skin and where you live, you may need to be supplementing vitamin D. In general, it's a good idea to get your levels checked and then supplement accordingly rather than just to guess on what you need or just do blind supplementation. I give, I prescribe vitamin supplements almost every day in my clinic. It's, it's, Part, you know, part of what we do for migraines and for just lots of neurological uh, situations, neuropathy, et cetera, especially in the older population. A lot of the older people are deficient in B12. I see a lot of B2 deficiency, uh, some folic acid deficiency, et cetera. And I just supplement based on the numbers. Uh, so it's good to, if you have any questions, just get checked out, you know, and then you could make specific supplementation that's that you actually need rather than guessing or thinking that more is better, it isn't, or that they can't do any harm, it can. Every vitamin has a toxic level. I actually see, have seen vitamin toxicity as well. And sometimes people aren't even sure where they're getting all the vitamins from. So people just think about it incorrectly, encouraged by decades of marketing from the supplement industry. Vitamins are not a pure good. They're like anything else. It's all about the dose. Like anything else, there's a, there's a sweet spot, you know, that is appropriate. Don't, you know, you don't mega dose, you know, it doesn't replace a good diet. You can take too much. You, if you have any questions about what you, what your individual needs are, you know, consult an actual physician, not a fake physician, like a naturopath or some nutritional guru, you know, consult somebody who is science-based and, uh, and physicians actually do know about nutrition. That's another myth. Uh, it is part of science-based medicine, and we, and we but we base it on actual evidence, like this study, not just oh anything natural is good, and there's superfoods and more whatever. That's just all marketing nonsense. Yeah, I hope this does you know cause people to rethink the nutritional hype that is being heavily marketed. We're just one you know, lonely voice crying in the wilderness, right? Because there's just billions and billions of dollars at stake here. The, sub, the supplement industry was $36.1 billion in the U.S. in 2017, and, it can, and it's growing steadily. It's, it is growing steadily. It's a lot of, lot of money for, and probably for, for no net health benefit. 
That's the other thing. It's what, so there's an opportunity cost there as well, both for society and for individuals. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Just like your mommy told you to. That is still the best advice. But eating it, like a whole fine. bag of smart food after the show tonight, not a good idea. Or a side <laughs> of bacon. It's yeah, not, smart food's not actually smart. Not going to do much for your nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. So, guys, my son told me, which you heard in last week's show, that he wants to be an astrophysicist. <laughs> Wise choice. I, I'm not kidding. I think KiwiCo w- was a part of his decision because I was talking to him quite a bit about science and scientists and what does it mean to be a scientist. And the KiwiCo fits in because they make learning fun. Uh, they make learning about science and technology and engineering and art and math a lot of fun. It's a great experience for kids. And how it works is they send you a box about the size of a shoebox and it has a project in it. And the project is targeted to the specific child's age or their age range. And these projects are all different. My daughter is still playing with hers now. I think we're going on week three and she's still picking up and playing with it. Um, so I, I really recommend you take a look at their website and see all the different types of projects that you could order. And what's better, you know, your kids are going to learn and they're going to be able to have fun while they're doing it. And, and you could talk to them about science. Yeah, I like the fact that it's really hands-on. Obviously, kids today are very savvy in using all kinds of electronic media, but it's good to get them out in the meat space and interacting with actual physical objects. Um, that's a, that, that may be an experience and a skill set that they're, they're getting too little of. And KiwiCo is offering Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics to try KiwiCo for free. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Kara, I understand that artificially intelligent machines are coming for my job. Uh, Not your job, but if you were an oncologist, they might be coming for it. Well, Uh, eventually they're going to come through oncologists and then hit every subspecialty. Yeah, there's a a new study out in the um, Annals of Oncology, uh, literally just published, called Man Against Machine, Diagnostic Performance of a Deep Learning Convolutional Neural Network for Dermoscopic Melanoma Recognition in Comparison to 58 Dermatologists. So if that's not clear, they compared Google's Inception V4 CNN architecture, that's a convolutional neural network architecture, to they they um, compared the outcome of that to the outcome of fifty eight trained dermatologists in their capability of correctly detecting melanoma versus benign uh, moles in a sample of images. And they did this a couple different ways. Um, they were able to split up the fifty eight dermatologists according to. Um, their level of experience and compare them that way. And they were also able to look at both false positives and false negatives, type one and type two errors in the outcome. And they found, what do you guys think? Um, Who was better? Machine. Machine. Machine was better. But there, but that the conclusion of both the article and the write arounds that I'm finding are, you know, let's not get too excited about this. I mean, it's really great and it'll be a great tool, but we're not going to get rid of dermatologists anytime soon. One thing that they did find is that in comparing the dermatologist outcomes 
to um, they looked at two different scenarios in one group. Um, actually, it was the same group, but it was a month later. They showed just the images. And in the comparison group, they showed images, but they also gave a clinical history. And they did find that the dermatologists were better at their diagnostics when they had a clinical history, um, as you would expect. But even with the clinical history, uh, the deep learning network was better than the dermatologists. Now, the dermatologists were from 17 different countries. So they had a plethora of training. Again, like I said, they ranged from having early experience, I can't remember what they called them, beginners, which was less than two years, to intermediates, um, or I can't remember what they called them either, um, whatever, uh, that had between two and five years, to what they considered expert level, which was more than five years of experience. And as you would expect, the beginners uh, made more more errors, the experts made fewer errors. But across the board, both the experts and the experts that had a clinical history still did not perform as well as the uh, convolutional neural network. And the reason that this is new is because they have used machines before for um, doing this diagnostic screening, and they were never able to beat people because the parameters on the machines were still based around uh, human invention. So people came up with what the criteria were, people coded these machines, and then they let the machines do their job. The difference here with this Google architecture, this convolutional neural network, is that it's it learns, right? So they were able to give it the basic images. They were able to give it feedback about which ones were cancer, which ones were not, which is very easy to do because they have massive um, databases of that information. And then the more it looked at images, the more it was able to learn. And eventually it learned in such a way that it could detect things better than people. And they think it's because their detection came down to the pixel, and that there are apparently different um, algorithms that they were able to to collect and describe. And, you know, it's hard to know after the fact, uh, post hoc, looking back and saying, what algorithm did they use? What, what were they able to find that people aren't able to find? But they were just that much better. Um, the caution here, though, is that there are a lot of times where these images aren't as clear. Like uh, dermatologists might be looking at a mole or some sort of lesion that's on a boundary area of skin that's obscured by hair that for whatever reason doesn't have as clear borders. And in those cases, the machine is probably not going to be as good as the human being. And, you know, just because this is a really good screening uh, tool, and hopefully this will get to the place where it's a screening tool that all oncologists in this situation or dermatologists can use, you still need clinical uh, knowledge to be able to form treatment plans and to be able to describe and, and decide, you know, should we completely excise? Is this something where we need to biopsy? And so on and so forth. But at the beginning, what it could do is it could help people catch these things early, especially if there's some sort of app on their phone where they could do a pre-screening that would tell them, oh, yes, okay, crap, maybe I should go see my dermatologist, because a lot of times this stuff happens just because people don't go in. And B, it might protect a lot of patients from needless surgery because um, it, it, it did show that the errors that were most um, often committed by the beginner dermatologists or oncologists were the individuals who put the patients through needless surgery because they thought a benign mole was actually cancerous. So maybe it could help protect some people from that. Yeah, this is cool. And I think this is going to get better and better. And mm -hmm. But the way these yep, these metal. systems are used, it's to supplement the physician. 
Um, Absolutely. Because we have systems that can detect seizures on an EEG automatically or abnormal signals or that can you know, draw a radiologist's attention to something unusual on an X-ray that they then can in, in inspect. So I think that you know, computers and people have very complementary skills when it comes to this sort of thing. Computers are good at being methodical and doing the exact same thing every time. Mm-hmm. Right, where people are not so great at that, right, at having a hundred percent attention, being completely methodical, never making mistakes. You know, we, you know, people are error prone. People are better at pattern recognition and at putting things into context. And so, having a you know, using this as a tool, like saying, "All right, here are the things you need to pay attention to," but then having the radiologist or whoever then you know do their own reading. Uh, is sort of getting the best of both world of both worlds, or in this case, it just gives supplementary information to the dermatologist they can incorporate into their own assessment. Yeah, and of course, physicians use tools, um, maybe not exactly this sophisticated, but physicians use tools similar to this all the time. You mentioned radiologists. I have a good friend who's a diagnostic radi- or I'm sorry, an interventional radiologist, and she was asked recently, "Could you do your job without like?" all these toys. And she's like, no, my job is toys. Like, that's what interventional radiologists do. We only use toys. And so it's like, without that, that her job wouldn't exist. Um, it's, I'm reminded, Steve, of what you just said there about, you know, what machines are good at, what people are good at, is that my statistics professor, you know, you often hear the garbage in, garbage out analogy. Um, but he loves to, to mention that the statistical software that we use is, um, is a faithful idiot. That computers, like you said, will do the same thing really well over and over. But if we feed it garbage, it will it will tell you that it found something even if nothing's there because we didn't give it the right input. So, like, mm. we're still a big part of that equation. Absolutely. Uh, but the, just yeah, going to the machine learning approach mm-hmm. is is taking things to a new level, no question. Yeah, huge. Kind of, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's the first time that they've um, been able to do better. You know, because we've used pattern recognition software before. But again, like I said, it was always coded by people and used uh, human influence parameters. But now it's able to learn and it's able to kind of surpass some of those parameters that um, that even the best coders could put in there. Cool. Yeah. That is cool. Very neat. All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Bob, so I understand that Elon Musk, who we all love, right, had a bit of a (laughs) Twitter meltdown over (laughs) nanotechnology recently. We're all musketeers here. Mm, I'm not a musketeer. <laughs> uh, yeah, this one this one caught my attention for obvious reasons. Um, so Elon Musk, uh, he didn't have a great media week recently. Uh, what caught my attention <laughs> was a Twitter hubbub between him and scientists because he called nanotechnology BS. I repeat, what? Musk called nanotechnology BS, which means bullshit. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you for okay. that. Wow. Hey, you're but right. Was- he was trying to say that you can throw the word nano before anything and it and you know he was trying to say that it's used pseudoscientifically right like quantum well, but he I was mean, overly inclusive in that and kind of threw the entire field under the bus yeah. well, let's see Oops. let's go through the let's go through the timeline so what happened first was that there was a lot of back and forth uh, on Twitter between Musk and a lot of people um about ostensible dangers in his factories and then that kind of morphed into talk back and forth about unions and then then he was going off on the the media saying some yeah. unusual things about the media and he was he was shitting all over science like legitimately p- good science journalists when he was doing that which was extra weird yeah i mean i'm not even gonna go into that part i'm gonna talk about the, the real important thing was when uh at one point australian molecular biologist and nanotechnologist upulier divisiquera 
God, I didn't probably way off in pronunciation. But I know. I never have in. pronounced her name. I've always just seen it. I yeah. thought it was Yupoli. <laughs> yeah. Could be. Could be. So she chimed in with, uh, with a tweet that said, with all due respect, this is pathetic. And, uh, Elon did not like that. Not at all. He responded to that with, ahem, you have nano in your bio. That is 100% synonymous with bullshit. End mm-hmm. quote. Uh-oh. Uh, he, uh, he said 100% synonymous with bullshit. So that's, that's what really, that really got to me. I mean, sure, you can go off on different aspects of it, but 100% synonymous, like, the, like, like it's, um, you know, like it's uh, some complete pseudoscience. It's, it was really seemed over the top to me. Does he think his cars would run or his rockets would go off I, without well, nanotechnology? So this, of course, brought a lot of scientists out pointing out how nanotechnology is, is part of the industries that he's involved in. Hello. And, uh, and Divis Akada, uh, uh, she continued to tweet. To Musk, clarifying her thoughts about nanotechnology, saying some interesting things. So far, Musk has not replied to her, as, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but he did reply to a post by nanotech engineer uh, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, and his reply to her was, "Nano applies to everything, and therefore means nothing." Definitely indicated BS. Sorry. So yeah. So then, but then he includes a link t- to that to that tweet. He includes a link to an article about nanotechnology on the uh, Encyclopedia website. Which basically goes off on how overhyped nanotechnology is, um, and primarily to scam people into buying stuff like hair products or investing in magically unrealistic techno, you know, near future technologies. When I looked in, I, did, I wasn't familiar with Encyclopedia, but I looked into it. That's a satirical website, first of all, uh, a very unusual source to support an argument. Um, so let's see what Encyclopedia has to say about Elon Musk himself. Um, so the Encyclopedia says Elon Whitey on the Moon Musk, my, oh sure my what's, God, what's talking what? about, says, uh, is a wow. self-made egomaniac who wants to send cars into space via his SpaceX technology. His latest test drive saw a pilot willingly go into space to show off Musk's new car, the Turbo Gizmo. And then it goes on and on. So clearly okay. this is just, just for Sniping. laughs and stuff. Yeah. It's satirical. It's just trying to be funny and whatever. So, uh, it's just unusual that he, he, he would use that to support, uh, some of, some of what he was saying. But that said, Encyclopedia is correct to a degree about nanotechnology. Sure, there's a lot of hype. You know, often nanotechnology is more marketing than anything else, especially when it started going mainstream. Um, research and the products were branded nanotech, even if there was only a passing association with the nanoscale. Uh, material scientists became nanotechnologists along with microbiologists and electron microscopists. And, uh, and that's just the, the, the professions. Cause I mean, this was the hot new toy in town and people wanted to jump on the bandwagon. You know, I could see, especially when you're fighting, you're struggling for research funds. Um, and you want to see more cutting edge. And, you know, it, it does loosely apply to a lot of these things, but that's not even talking about all the, all the products that were there that are out. And even to this day, uh, shampoos and skin creams and things like that, that where they're touting all this nanotech. Uh, stuff. So Keton Joshi, who's a, a communications consultant for the renewable energy industry, tweeted, there are thousands of dodgy AF solar power products who use the word solar and renewable to defraud consumers. That doesn't mean people researching or selling solar technology are BS. Same goes for quantum, ions, electrons, and consciousness. And I think that that's the critical point here. Nanoscience is real and, you know, having, and it's having an increasingly huge impact on the world's economy. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily need 
Drexlerian nanobots to have nanoscience. There's lots of great nanoscience going on, even if it's more of nanoparticle manipulation and, uh, and, uh, and constructing things out of the nanoscale, even if it's not active systems, it's more passive. That's still, it's still nanoscience. It's still n- nanotechnology. And there, you know, there's lots of different ways you can look at nanotechnology. Some people want to describe it more as, uh, they call it molecular nanotechnology. If you, if you, if you want to have more of a strict definition of, uh, of what it means. Um, all right. So there's, so there's all that. So then after a few days and things settled a little bit, um, then Musk tweeted this nanotech is so 2008. Picotech is a thousand times better, but femto, <laughs> but femtotech is the future. So when I read that, I was like, okay, what the funny? hell? So, so, all right. So any tweet referencing picotech and femtotech is awesome in my book. I mean, I almost don't even care about the context. Just saying those words, I just love. Agreed. But why did he say that? You know, was he trolling before or was he pretending it was a joke? Because he realized he was wrong and he was really just emotionally tweeting because he was getting so much abuse on, that never on Twitter. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what to make. <laughs> I don't know what to make about his reaction. You know, was he, is he really not so pessimistic about nanotech? I mean, and does he realize that it really is no nanoscience is real stuff? I don't, I don't know what to make of it at this point, but I, I'm just happy that more people, uh, than usual were talking about nanotech, uh, the past week. So that's, so that's cool. And uh, so for the record though, I mean, so mm-hmm. what, Na- nano is 10 to the 9. That's a billionth of a meter. Right. Uh, Pico is 10 to, the t- 10 to the 12th. Femto is 10 to the 15th. So they are increasingly small scale. So Picotech uh, manipulates matter at the scale of this trillions of a meter. So this is like atomic level technology uh, beyond what nanotech can do. And Femtotech, what he was really saying is the future. That's manipulation on the scale of quadrillions of a meter. Um, that's the femto scale. That's subatomic uh, level. And of we're not course, there. I'm, no effing way are we no there. Way. But and it's but it's fascinating to consider. Of course, you know I'm I'm gonna, I'm a little enthusiastic about the potential the potential. But there are problems with femtotech. I mean, you're talking about utilizing excited nuclear states, but they tend to be incredibly unstable. They're they're relatively limited in number, and it may be an impossible technology that we will never master. You know, even if, even in a millennia or potentially there could be some ways to create stable femto structures that would be remarkable. I mean, we're talking about things like building a vehicle that could travel to the center of the earth, for example. Here, that's a possibility. You know, creating uh, ring worlds or Dyson shells out of this material. And yeah, this is just pure speculation at this point. But of course, I want to go through what, what some people are saying about it. I mean, essentially with femto technology, we're talking about materials with properties a million times better than the properties of normal molecular matter. So that's what he is. That's what Musk is saying. Femtotech is the future. If And if it is the future, I mean, we're talking uh, quite a bit of time before we can even get to anything like that. But yeah, it's that's science fiction right now. Absolutely. But it's still, it's still, you know, it's interesting to, to speculate. But, but nanotech and nanoscience, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty obvious that this is real stuff. This isn't pseudoscience. It's not merely marketing and, and hype, even though there may be a good chunk of marketing and hype into it. There's still so much great science going on here. And it clearly, you know, this is something that's going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, and I think, I think, uh, Musk realizes that. I think there's two ways to uh, interpret these tweets from Musk. Cause also I wrote about Musk's attack on the media oh. and it's the same okay. problem basically in that he's expressing views which lack all nuance. Uh, and so right. from, yep. if you're being generous, you could say, well, this is an artifact of Twitter. Twitter is just not a good place to express nuanced, complicated positions. Right. You end up characters. boiling it down yeah. to sound bites 
that are going to come off a little absolute. But I don't think that quite explains his behavior. Maybe contributing to it, maybe a factor, but it's not sufficient to explain his behavior because um, he doubled and tripled down when people called him on his lack of nuance. Mm. He said, no, no, this is it. Boom. It's 100% bullshit. Yeah, that's what got me is that 100% quote. That really shocked me. And on the media, he puts up this poll that was literally a false dichotomy. It was literally the media is terrible and crashing and burning versus the media is awesome and everything is great. It's like, <laughs> do it. can I have a third choice somewhere in yeah, the middle? Yeah, somewhere. No. You know? So – I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, I think that Musk is behaving a little bit like a neophyte skeptic in that he is – I think he thinks he's being clever. I think he's be, he thinks he's being witty by saying these observations like, oh, anything with nano in the title has got to be bullshit. You know what I mean? That kind of – it sounds skeptical. It sounds clever, but it really is oversimplistic. And then – because he because he is who he is, you know, I think he's probably getting a little bit too used to having yes men around him. When people call him on it, like because, you know, I think that we did a lot of that kind of behavior in our early years as well. I mean, that's sort of the phase you pass through when you're a new skeptic. And then hopefully as you mature, as people say, oh, not really, it's more there's a more nuanced, complicated approach you can take to that. Like nanotechnology is legitimate. But it's overhyped in these ways, just like, yes, yeah, stem cells are legitimate, but people are using it to overhype fake stem cell treatments, whatever. It's like you get to this more nuanced view. I think he should be evolving in that direction, but he's just having a hissy fit when people call him on it and doubling down because he's fucking Elon Musk, you know? Anyway, that's how he comes off. That's how he comes off. And I think that's unfortunate. He should he he shouldn't lose his humility even who he is, because that humility is critical to correcting these kind of statements, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Steve. I think he, he had a little meltdown there. I think he tried to roll it back, too. Yeah. Uh, or make light of it in order to help soften it. Yeah. Just admit end. it. Just say, you know what? You're right. I was being too simplistic. I didn't mean to malign legitimate nanotech, just pointing out that it's used, it's overhyped, like many new technologies. Get, just own it. Just go to that more yeah. nuanced place and people will respect you, give you mad props for that. But he's acting like a baby and it, it's unfortunate. And it is interesting that this is happening. This meltdown is happening right after we got a lot of feedback about how positive we tend to be about Elon Musk. Which is it's just a coincidence, but it's interesting because, you know, the thing is, we're not like fanboys of Musk. We give him praise when he does stuff we think are cool. You know, you like with SpaceX, like one guy gave us wrote us an email where he's like, "You guys are being too positive about Musk and SpaceX." I'm sure there's got to be some problem with it. I don't know what the, the what that is because I don't know <laughs> anything about it. But right. there must be something. It's like, really, dude, you're going to come back at us and you're not even going to do your homework. But the thing is, SpaceX is getting it done, right? I mean, they, he, they're landing ships vertically. He gets yeah. absolute massive props for that. Legitimate. He act, we're, we're praising him on stuff he's actually already accomplished. Is he a hype machine? Sure. 
Does he oversell, overpromise like everybody, like every, you know, techno entrepreneur? That's just comes with the territory. Entrepreneur. <laughs> entrepreneur. I like that. He does. He's a techno entrepreneur. That's what he is. I mean, so absolutely. But he has a vision. We like the vision. There's a lot of interesting stuff to it. He's trying. He's bold. And he's actually getting stuff done. Yep. He's bold. You got to love it. I mean, there's nothing. But, but, but if he acts like a baby, we'll criticize him for that. Yeah, of course. We call it, it like we see it. I mean, it really is a plus and minus list. I mean, the, he lost yeah. some points with me. But, you know, the pluses have been that his company is delivering. Um, he is pushing a lot of different technologies that I, I respect. And, you know, to be really honest, there is an element of gee whiz here that makes me feel like a little kid again. You know, I'm excited about his vision and what he's doing. That being said, I'm not a, really a fan of anyone. Like, as soon as this stuff came out, I'm like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I'm walking him back. You know what I mean? Like, he's not as cool as he was to me a week ago. Mm-hmm. It's as, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Bottom line is, I mean, if Elon Musk tomorrow came out and said that he believed in homeopathy, he'd be at ground zero with me, you know? Then it'd be like, all right, now he's turning into an old crank, you know? Yeah. And that would be unfortunate. I mean, hopefully that's not going to happen. I oh, think he's, he's too smart for that. I think this is just master of the universe syndrome. You know what I mean? Yeah. You get to, you're, you're a billionaire running all these companies and getting so much attention and everything. You begin to think that your shit doesn't smell and that you know, you can, that your every utterance is pure gold. And it's something that seems witty to you. That's good enough. And that's good. It's tweet worthy. And if anyone calls you on it, then they clearly don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? Right. Come down to earth a little bit, pal. We all need to be humble and that largely – that often means recognizing that the world is more complicated than your your clever witticism pretends. You know, sure. I, it's, it's – we'd, we'd love it if we could always boil down reality into some pithy little witticism, but it doesn't always work that way. And own your mistakes. Own up to them. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I mean at Girl. least at least – Elon didn't say that he was Ambient tweeting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's true. Not yet. He didn't blame it on Ambient. We have to. We'll, we'll grant him that. Not yet. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, LinkedIn. If you're a business owner, you have to know that your biggest asset is the quality of the people that you have working for you. And you have to always consider the fact that the right person for the job that you have is paramount. You, know, you don't want to post a job and just hope that the right person stumbles on it. You want to make sure that you find the exact right person you're looking for to fill that position. So you could use LinkedIn to help you find that right candidate. Some of the stats here are pretty impressive. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. I know I am. And 22 million professionals view and apply jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry. And hundreds of thousands of businesses have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. So go to linkedin.com slash skeptics and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash skeptics for your $50 credit today. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. Last week I played This Noisy. Got lots of fun guesses on this one. I'm sure. Because there's just so many different sounds in there and so many different ways to interpret this. So first off, thanks, guys. I got a lot of fun emails from people this week. Um, but I tried to pick out some of the more interesting ones. So Mark Marriott said, 
IJ, I love your work. This noisy sounds like an industrial roller door opening or closing in serious need of alignment and lubrication. <laughs> Mark, I agree with you. However, that is not the noisy. It certainly does sound like an industrial door that needs oil. Well, but uh, Is rolling part of the component uh, of the answer here? Something absolutely turning, not. Rolling? No. Oh, no. interesting. Because hey. I kind of detected that pattern. But You'd hmm. think, you know, for some, maybe. Okay, so we had a listener named Fatima write in, and Fatima uh, said, uh, hey, I'm a fairly new listener. Um, I work as a medical scribe at an ED and CT, which is uh, – ED is what, Steve? Emergency department. And CT is what? Connecticut. Uh, I think uh, she's in Connecticut. No? Oh, in CT. And ED oh, and CT. Yeah, that's Connecticut yeah. then, yeah. And uh, hey. one of the physicians there suggested this podcast to me. I think that's awesome. He said it would be very useful Neat. and beneficial to me, especially as a college student. And he was absolutely right. I have learned a lot from you all. Thank you. Anyway, my guess for who's that noisy is a bird Avery, maybe at the zoo. And then even even more interesting, my second guess is that these are birds scattering before a storm. I thought that was fun. But Fatima, I'm sorry, you're not correct on either of your guesses. I got a notable guess here. Marcus Noble said, listening late, but it sounds like the ambient noise one hears when passing between two subway cars. I thought that was really insightful. Um, in my case, New York City. That is what – there is a subway car-like sound in there. Yeah, right? but there, is, there isn't the clackety-clack though. Right. That's true. Or the Doppler shift. But there is a winner and there usually is only one because they're time-stamped. I've never had two people send me an email at the same exact time. Uh, the winner this week mm. – is from Luisa Primo, and she says, Hey, Jay, this week's noisy reminds me of a noisy I've been meaning to suggest for a long time. It's Nightingale Japanese floors. So what is this, guys? What? These are floorboards designed to intentionally creak and make chirping sounds when walked on. And it's a security device. Oh, interesting. You ever heard of these? You ever heard of the, uh, you no. know, the, uh, the Samurai's House? It's not a, a, a squeaky nail. It is an actual physical mechanism. The floorboard goes down. And there is a mechanism that rubs metal against metal and makes a squeaky noise. Mm. So it's a deliberately creaky floor as a security measure. That might drive me a little, you know. Yeah, but you know they're coming for you, Ev. In the middle of the night, you got okay, ninjas great. sneaking in, you know, through the <laughs> or, through the, the dog the, uh, or something. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. Imagine that. God right. damn it! Get that dog out of here. So anyway, uh, you know what? Uh, Richard Harris sent that in. Thank you, Richard. That was really cool. There is a video that I found with people walking on the floor. Um, it's you know, it's not. Not a great video, but it does show you, you know, that it looks like a normal floor and it's making a hell of a racket. So that was fun. I have a new noisy this week. The new noisy is, you know, Steve, Nexus is an amazing conference. I think so. When we started the Perry DeAngelis Memorial Conference Series, right away, uh, Mike decided that he was going to uh, ask us if we wanted to join forces with New York City Skeptics. And we did. And that's how Nexus was born. Um, I remember you had a meeting with Mike and you came back and said, we're calling it Nexus. And I said, it sounds like something to do with magic. Is that the best name you guys can come up with? <laughs> I remember like that? It. Yeah. <laughs> I like I the name. From the get-go. Yeah, no, it, it is a good name. I am bringing uh, Nexus up because we have a, a speaker that I'd like to point out to you, Dr. Katie Mack. Uh, Katie is a theoretical astrophysicist, science communicator, and holder of a hilarious and informative Twitter account at Astro Katie. And why should you come see Katie Mack, Steve? You know, listen, she doesn't just communicate her scientific research, but also the experiences of underrepresented groups in academic culture. 
that this is something that maybe Bob would be interested in. Sure, man. Let me tell She's you a awesome. few, few things about her. She's done research on dark matter, the early universe, galaxy formation, and black holes. Steve, she's written for Scientific American, Slate, and Time. Uh, she is a connoisseur of airplane food. I have to talk to her at the conference oh, to wow. ask her what the hell that's about. Jay, you had me at dark matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. It sounds like she has a really, really interesting life. So she will be uh, appearing at Nexus on July 14th at 3.15 p.m., and she's talking about the death of a universe, what modern astrophysics tells us about the ultimate fate of the cosmos and uh, what each different possibility would entail if people were still alive. That sounds really, mm-hmm. really scary and cool. So going to be there. Now, another interesting thing about Nexus is this is when you hear this, you'll have about one more week to get our early bird pricing, and then we jack up the prices because you're registering late, and that's just the way we punish you. So why don't you uh, <laughs> register now? Come to the conference. You're going to be able to hang out with uh, the cast of the SGU. We're going to have... Dozens of awesome speakers there, lots of nighttime events, and uh, it's in New York City. So, you know, there, there's, it's, name a city that's better. All right, next to that one. Jay, I like our um, the workshops that we're participating in. So I'm doing how to read scientific articles and science reporting. And then you and me and Brian Wecht and George Traub are doing a workshop on what do you got, basically, where people get to shoot ideas at us about how to improve the skeptical movement, right? Yep. And Steve, I'm doing another workshop with Brian and my wife, Courtney, and we are going to be discussing what makes a character successful in a film. And there's Mm -hmm. all the different elements that need to to all land correctly in order for a character to actually have gravitas and, and make you care about them in a movie. Yeah, okay. and I'm in that workshop too, Jay, so I'll be there next year. Oh, yes. Okay, so you will be joining <laughs> us with that one. All yes. right. I Good. can't wait. Steve always does that. He's like, and I'll be on that one because I like the topic. And yeah, job. that's right. <laughs> so <laughs> no, They're all spaced out, so I could, I can. It's, it's on the schedule too. Yep, that's right. Um, I have a new Noisy this week. Here is the Noisy. was sent in by Tess Reynolds. What the heck is that? I know you're scared, but all you got to do is send me a guess or a cool noisy that you heard this week at WTN at theskepticsguy.org. And guys, don't forget uh, tomorrow as this comes out, Sunday, June 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing our first Patreon question and answer session live stream. Uh, and Jay, you screwed up on UTC. Some we got corrected by a few people. UTC is four hours ahead during the uh, the daylight savings time. Excuse oh, me, oh, that's right. Bo- yep. Bob screwed up on UTC. Yep. I distinctly asked Bob, and it was this was Bob's fault. And yep. many people emailed I was, me. I was right before daylight savings, and then I was wrong. That's Afterwards. correct. At one point in time in the past, <laughs> you were correct, but not now. But not this day. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Uh, fake. (laughs) There's no theme this week. You'll be relieved to hear. Themeless. Well, actually, I'm upset this week that there's no theme. You are? 
I don't know why. I just feel like make up your own theme, Jay. Yeah. All right. I did come up with something interesting, Steve. Yeah. I I can do a science or fiction. Who's that noisy? I can play four sounds. All right. Do it. You you, yeah. You want me to do that one night? Yeah. Do it one night. All right. Here we go. Item number one, a new study finds that higher levels of testosterone in older men correlate with and probably cause lower religiosity. Item number two, a new systematic (laughs) review calls into question the practice of vaginal seeding, exposing infants born via C-section to their mother's vaginal fluids to mitigate the increased risk of asthma, allergies, autoimmune disorders, and obesity that comes with C-section. And item number three, chemists have developed a new synthetic opioid from sugar that has less than 10% of the addictive potential as morphine. Kara, I don't believe you've gone first in a while. Okay. Higher levels of testosterone in older men correlate with and probably cause. Okay. So this would have been some sort of study that had a decent, I don't know how you could, mm, after the fact, like a post hoc thingy, but then maybe there were some controls worked in. Lower religiosity. What? I just don't. Higher levels of. T- what? That's bullshit. The part that really bugs me about this one is the probably cause, because I could see them correlating. There could be any number of intermediary things, but I don't like the probably cause. But probably is a caveat. So, uh, okay, a new systematic review calls into question the practice of vaginal seeding, exposing infants born via C-section to their mother's vaginal fluids. I thought they exposed them to um, feces, but I think it's more than just vaginal fluid. There's like blood. I think there's some feces. The idea is that all the things that could have bacteria in it is helping to get the baby's immune system going, which is weird because almost every baby gets antibiotics like the minute it's born, don't they? Ugh, I don't know. All right. And then chemists have developed a new synthetic opioid from sugar that has less than 10% of the addictive potential as morphine. Huh, from sugar. I like that. You know, a lot of times when people are craving, when they're going through withdrawal, um, they do crave sugar and it kind of takes the edge off a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that uh, the new synthetic opioid from sugar is is going to be a science. So the question is, which is fiction, the testosterone one or the VBAC one? The testosterone one I, sounds so stupid. I feel like it has to be fiction, which means it's probably science. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to flip the script a little, which is probably a terrible idea, and say that the the C-section with the fluids is the fiction and that the new systematic review probably reinforces that it has a positive benefit on the baby's immune system, not that it calls it into question. Okay, Bob. I don't know where you got these. Um, <laughs> I know. I didn't I, see I read, any of these. I read so many interesting little <laughs> news items, and these are – and uh, no, what, no physics, no astronomy. <laughs> I got, we're, we're talking about <laughs> vaginal fluids. Yep. <laughs> Bob knows nothing about vaginal <laughs> fluids, Karis. <laughs> it's not up his alley. Um, oh, I think uh, Kara did a pretty good assessment. I really don't have nothing more to add here. Um, but I, I like the idea of sugar being turned into an opioid for some stupid reason. <laughs> um, that's kind of a fun one. Less than 10%. Wow, nice. So, um, yeah, and uh, and I think yeah, I think it seems like the uh, the lower regi- religiosity because of testosterone just seems like too easy. And so, based you know, based on that, I mean, I'll just I'll, I'll uh, GWC and go with the, uh, <laughs> the vaginal fluids as uh, fiction. Okay, Evan. Higher levels of testosterone correlate with the pro- and probably cause lower religiosity. 
is testosterone and estrogen a yin yang kind of thing? If one replaces the other, as one goes up, the other goes down. Is the, or are no. they independent of each they're other? They're independent. I think they're independent. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they're independent. I had a I had a certain line of thinking going on there, but that uh, kind of derailed it. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Which I suppose means that one's going to be science in my head. I'm having a problem with the opioid one from Sugar. Mm. Uh, I have two Uh-oh. problems. I have two problems. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, Kara. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, I, 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 so, and Kara, I, I wish I could tap into your uh, knowledge on this and obviously Steve's. How do, how do opioids and sugar both sort of work in the brain as far as the other chemicals of the brain, neuroreceptors and these sorts of things? And I would argue, I mean, from my own experience, that people can have an addiction to sugar that they can also in the way sort of as an opioid. So if you're going to come up with something from sugar that has less than 10%, that's a huge spread of the addictive potential of morphine. Although morphine is very powerful, very, very powerful. So perhaps that's it. But something's not clicking right there. I- I'm I'm going to buck the trend just because I just have a really bad feeling about this one. I'll say this opioid from sugar one's going to turn out to be the fiction. And Jay. So this first one here about the uh, older men that have higher levels of testosterone are prone or probably are have lower religiosity the thing I don't get about this one is if you think about it, these older men that have more testosterone and having more sex, they would be more religious, wouldn't they? I mean, think about it. They're like, oh, God. Oh, God. Right? <laughs> gotcha, Jay. Yep, yep. Hey. Karen, <laughs> look, you think I'm nuts in the way I get to things, but really think about that one. Um, you got me there. I'm <laughs> yeah. with you. All right. So th- the bottom line on that one is that I could absolutely see t- testosterone having an effect on the mind. So there's something there that I think there could be a correlation. Sure. You know, cause it's, you know, testosterone is, uh, has a dramatic impact on, uh, on the human body and on the mind. So next one here. Now you, Steve wrote a, a new systematic review calls into question the practice of vaginal seeding. I have no problem with that. There's a new review that says that they think that the vaginal seeding is bull. I agree with that. I have no problem with number two at all. Okay. I don't know what you guys were even debating about it because it, it's essentially <laughs> saying, be skeptical about this. It's BS and it seems like BS. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like what Evan was saying about number three. He didn't say much. He just said he wants to buck the trend. But um, <laughs> And you like well, that. I talked about uh, sugar in the brain. <laughs> I'm remembering Loosely. a relationship between sugar and opioids um, but it didn't have anything to do – it wasn't making – I didn't read – you know, this is a new news item. I didn't read anything about this. But I did read something about sugar and opioids having some type of relationship. So this one, it can go – I could take that either way then. I just can't see them making making uh, a morphine derivative out of sugar in any way. I, I can't see them doing it. It doesn't make any sense. They're, they're two very different chemicals. So I'm going, to, I'm going to agree with Evan. It's going to be me and Evan against Bob and Kara. Oh. And I will right. say that that number three is the fake. Okay. But oh, you boy. all agree on the first one. Uh-oh. So let's start there. Yes. A new study finds that higher levels of testosterone in older men correlate with and probably cause lower religiosity. 
You no, this has to be all bullshit, think <laughs> this one is science and this one is Uh-oh. science. Uh-huh. Oh. Thank God. Ow. So two of you are correct. The question is, is religiosity purely psychosocial or is there actually a physiological component to it? And the authors conclude from their study that this supports growing evidence that there may be a physiological component to it. Obviously, there's a huge psychosocial component as well. So what they found is that higher baseline levels of both testosterone and DHEA prospectively predicted religious ties, whether measured through attendance at services or network connections to clergy. Moreover, contrary to arguments that sociocultural modulation of androgens the pattern of associations was most consistent with hormonal causation of religious connections. So in other words, being religious doesn't raise your testosterone level. They, they, with the, the way the correlation worked in their study, basically by time, it was time invariant and the time varying confounders. They found that the, the most parsimonious interpretation of the correlation was that the high levels of testosterone caused the increased tendency to be religious. Um, this also included like people taking hormone supplements and things like that. So that's interesting. And yeah, you know, those kind of hormones, estrogen, testosterone, et cetera, do affect the brain developmentally and functionally. Uh, and so it, it's highly plausible that it could have an effect on something like religiosity. Um, exactly how that connection is being made still needs to be fleshed out. Uh, this was just looking at is there a correlation and, you know, which way does it line up? Uh, not at the chain of, of connections, you know. And obviously this doesn't mean that there isn't a huge psychosocial factor. I think the psychosocial factor is still dominant. Uh, but it's interesting that there was a physiological effect there. It is interesting mm-hmm. to think that things out of your control, like various hormonal levels, affect the trajectory of your life, you know. That yeah. in a way yeah. we're just sort of riding along on the biology of our brain, and it it determines a lot about the choices that we make, the the kind of people that we are, the things that we do. You know, yeah, we're just without the, question. We're just the meat between our ears. You know, that's what it comes Sucks down to. to be it. human, the flawed meat between our ears. But it is it is what it is, right? It is it is what it is to be human. All right, let's go on to number two. A new systematic review calls into question the practice of vaginal seeding, exposing infants born via C-section to their mother's vaginal fluids to mitigate the increased risk of asthma, allergies, autoimmune disorders, and obesity that comes with C-section. Bob and Kara, you think this is the fiction. Uh, Jay and Evan, you think this one is science. Do you guys know what that's called, by the way, the other name for the vaginal seeding? Mm-mm. Uh, some kind baby. of something transfusion. Uh, bacterial baptism. The bacterial baptism. Yeah, I love it. Oh, uh, here we go with the religion now. No, I love it. So it is absolutely true that C sections are associated with an increased risk of asthma, allergies, autoimmune disease, and obesity. And the hypothesis of the bacterial bat- baptism is that this is because the children are not being exposed to the flora in the vaginal pathway during birth, and therefore it's not triggering the development of their immune system, and so they're developing all these immune problems. And the changes in their gut flora can have an effect on obesity. So this was a systematic review looking at the causes of these things, you know, asthma, allergies, etc., to see if 
it really does come down to the uh, the the flora that the child gets exposed to, and what they found was that there was no evidence to support that. So this one is science. Science. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, guys. But they didn't actually look at kids who had been vaginally seeded and kids who hadn't, or did they? Because it sounds like this is a really roundabout way to answer that question. They did. So that's okay. why that's why it's, you know calls into question. Didn't disprove yeah. it. So what they fed the, their evidence does not support the the bacterial baptism hypothesis. What they found was that people women who undergo C section are sicker than women who have vaginal birth. Sicker house. Well, they have lot they, they have a higher maternal obesity. They have higher gestational age. Uh, they have more complicated labor, of course. They have a greater risk of intrapartum antibiotic administration, and for some reason, they have differences in breastfeeding behavior. So all of these other factors can explain most, if not all, of the increased risk of these other disorders. And so there's no room left for the bacterial hypothesis. I see. And there's and they also say, and by the way, there's no evidence that it helps. So they said that there's the evidence does not support using this procedure and it has some safety issues. And so absent robust evidence of efficacy, we do not recommend that women do this. Sounds like the supplement study we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Meta-analysis. Then that comes up a lot in the OB world, you know, like the whole idea of correlating things like C-section and negative outcomes. And often it's that or like a complicated delivery and later developmental problems in the child. And Mm. it turns out that children with developmental issues have problems being delivered. It's not that the complicated delivery causes the developmental problems. Does that make sense? So the cause and effect errors going the opposite way. It's interesting. I wonder what would happen, though, if they took out all of the people, if they excluded all the people who had a C-section simply because their baby was too big. Yeah, Simply because it was a late, not a late age for the mother, like it was in there for too long, which is why most of the people I know who are young and healthy had C-sections is just simply that they were overdue and they couldn't get the baby out and they had to ultimately at the last minute do a C-section. Yeah. So they also point out that it's not, it still isn't clear that there's a huge difference in the microbiome of the infants from vaginal to um, C-section delivery. Um, so the, again, the underlying hypothesis hasn't really been proven at any level. So all of this means that chemists have developed a new synthetic opioid from sugar that has less than 10% of the addictive potential as morphine is the fiction. Here oh, is here is the title of the study that I based this on, however. A pathogenesis-related 10 protein catalyzes the final step in thebane biosynthesis. Sexy, right? So yeah. Uh, so uh, obvious now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gotcha. <laughs> it's right. Yeah, I think, Evan, you were thinking about the relationship between sugar and opioids in the wrong way. Okay. You shouldn't be thinking about the effect, the opioid-like effect of sugar on the brain. It has nothing to do with that. It's more that – so right now you know that uh, opioids are made from poppy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, opium poppy is the raw material for the entire opioid industry. That that's a problem because a lot of the raw opium is diverted to the illegal opium trade. Yeah. Right. So but here but where how does how do poppies make the opioids? I don't Naturally. know. From <laughs> sugar, right? From sugar. They have to, right? That's the precursor. Well, and and the sun. From the sugar and the sun. 
Yeah, but the point is, that, yeah, it's a, like all plants, right? Sugars yes. are the food for all plants. And then, you know, any, in any case, so the scientists knew that there must be um, either the, the, the reactions that the opium plant is undergoing had to be spontaneous or there must be some kind of enzymatic catalysis of this reaction. And so they've been looking for it. That's the Thebane synthesis because the Thebane is the precursor of the opium in the poppy. So this, what the study is, is they found it. They found the gene in the, in the poppy plant that makes the enzyme that catalyzes the reaction that makes sugar into the opium precursor. So that's, that's the only step that they make. They didn't actually go all the way into, to making morph, morphine like opioid. And the idea of making it an, an opioid that's not addictive is very seductive, but I don't even know if it's possible. Mm. Um, so, I, so Steve, can I just ask, like, what was the point of this study? Like, what was the actual research question they were trying to answer? What's the enzyme that Poppy uses to make uh, opium from the sugar base? But there was no downstream interest. I mean, like, why did they want to know? Well, they want to. No, 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 no. They want to know it so that we could manufacture sugar into opioids. That is the point. They just they haven't done that yet. But that is is one step on. Yes, that's absolutely the goal. And and because if you could do that, yeah, the the poppy plant becomes irrelevant and then we i guess i sure. didn't realize i thought morphine was synthetic well like i thought that we already knew how to make it synthetically the mass production is all from the poppy i had no idea yeah. oh that's interesting i just assume that we're in an era now where almost all drugs can be mass produced synthetically like it seems like there just isn't enough raw material not out there, not to be mass produced huh, so yeah no so the, the industry is all based on on opium poppy so this would this could change that it could all be based on sugar you know you could as a precursor we don't we don't need to grow poppy in Afghanistan you know for or yeah. it's actually mostly India and um, and they think an opioid derived from sugar will be less addictive that's the hope but I I don't that's no. that's pure oh, really? speculation pure speculation and I don't even know if it's possible because. Uh. It, that has to do with the receptors in the brain, right? Right. That's what I was thinking more along those lines. Yeah. So if if the, re, the the addictive potential is the same receptors as the pain relief, then you can't disentangle them. There's no possible way to do that. Um, India and Turkey. I'm sorry. India and Turkey are the two largest sources of the of the uh, raw you know poppy straw, which is the precursor. You know, yes, it's it's great if we could make newer opioids that maybe will have some good pharmacological properties and and less addictive potential will be one of the things that we go for. But there there will be biological limits to that, I suspect, mm-hmm. and we don't know what they are. But then, how does methadone work? Because it, I mean, it you still get addicted to methadone, but it's not nearly as extreme. No, the difference with methadone is that it's very long acting. And so you don't mm-hmm. get the withdrawal. Gotcha. So there's just no withdrawal. Because it, it, well, it's very very slow because it, it, it short acting drugs drop off very quickly, and that quickness of the drop off in your blood levels is what ca- really causes intense withdrawal. Methadone it's basically spreading the withdrawal out over a couple of days because it's such a long half life with a very slow drop off at the end. And so you could take one dose a day rather than having to dose more frequently, and then you could you know it. Uh, you could slow down. So you could wean very, very it's slowly. To wean yourself. Yeah, so yeah, and and because it's a it's a pharmaceutical, it's measured and it's quantified, and you know exactly how much you're yes. taking, so you can take less. But then that. there's naloxone, which is also a derived opiate, but that 
is a it, it's an antagonist. It, it yeah. blocks the receptors, and so it, it basically undoes the effect of opiates, which is why you could give it to somebody who's overdosing, right? And it immediately reverses the that because it knocks the opiates off the receptors and blocks them. Yeah. All right. Good job. Jay and Evan. Thank you, Evan. Yeah, hey, all right. See, yeah, hey, my whatever. Sugar, my, my sugar addiction finally is paying dividends. <laughs> <laughs> all Evan, those Twinkies. We should work together more often, my friend. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> if you're there, I'm here. All right, Evan, give us a quote. All right, this quote comes to us courtesy of Seth Dalib, listener from Los Angeles, and Kara's neighbor, right? Kara, you know yep. him? Yeah, I know Seth. There's not, sure. not too many people out there, and nope. everyone's all tightly living together, so you must Absolutely. know. Absolutely. <laughs> here it is. While I'm aware of the advantages of sensational publicity in drawing public attention to a problem, it should be stressed that unhealthy interest aroused as a result of distorted facts and misinformation should never be used as a basis for the furtherance of scientific knowledge. Yes, yes, written by Kirill Florensky, a Russian geochemist from the Soviet era, who was remarking at the time about the um, Tugunska comet or meteor explosion that took place, and there was lots of questioning as to what actually caused it, including suggestions of things like a black hole collided with the Earth and those sorts of crazy right. sorts of ideas. So he was, uh, he was addressing those more sensational <laughs> ideas about what might have really happened here and basically telling people, look, it's, uh, you know, Coming up, coming up with bad ideas like this is not the way you uh, further scientific knowledge. Totally agree. Cool. So there are some skeptics in in Russia. That's good. Yes, that's especially yes. good because our book was picked up by a Russian publisher. It's going to be pub it's going to be translated into Russian. And I have good news, guys. What is it? Oh, boy. Good news. Everyone. We had an offer from a Korean publisher. So now Ooh, hey. we've been Yay. picked up in China, Russia, Germany, and Korea. Wait, uh, north or south? I'm assuming south. <laughs> Probably <laughs> south. And also England, right? And then we have a UK publisher who will be mm -hmm. distributing the book in the UK, uh, Australia, and New Zealand, and English version of the book in Europe. Yeah, as a quick reminder, so anybody that ordered the book – Especially like if you did if you ordered it on the U.S. Amazon site, but you're not in the United States, it's likely your order was canceled by Amazon because they want you to order it from your your local Amazon or whatever. But these publishers that we were picking up in the other countries are going to have the book available. We're not 100 percent sure through what outlets, but you, that's what you need to do. You just have to try to find it in your country. It yeah, but we'll we'll let you know when you can pre-order it in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. We'll let you know. Uh, that should be over the summer sometime. Um, if you are in North America, you can pre-order the book right now, uh, both ebook and hard copy. Go to skepticsguidebook.com, and that has the links to all the places that you could pre-order it, and we will keep you guys updated about um, you know what countries it will be available in and which languages. Uh, and it's coming out October 2nd. Shortly, we'll be doing a book tour. We'll be doing some some local, you know, book stuff. But in, in addition, we'll be going to the UK because we're going there anyway for QED. Um, and while we're there, we'll be promoting the book in the UK. Should be a lot of fun. Neat. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me this week. Sure, thanks, man. Steve. Thank you, Thank Steve. You, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And remember, KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics.